Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. During this time here, we're going to go through about half an hour of material through the book of Mark. And then if you want to talk about anything, we open it up for discussion and Q&A. We put a phone number up on the screen so you can text in any questions that you have as we're going through the material. Or we'll just have mics roaming the room and we leave about 10 to 15 minutes of just where it is you want to go with it and what it is you want to talk about. Also, Kevin hosts a series of conversations during the 11 o'clock service about what it is that we're chewing on in here, uh, and that's in the lounge, all right? I hit everything, brothers and sisters. Now let's go to the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 14. Now, for those of you who have been with us, uh, and we realize that you retain and remember all the material up till this point, um, and that you love, you lo- sermon series are the things that you live for. I want to remind you, however, that was all sarcasm. I want to remind you, however, (laughs) that as we've been going through the book of Mark, there's been this dynamic that Mark introduces in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus has a parable, and he first talks about his disciples as insiders. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you. You are the insiders. And then he tells a parable about different kinds of soil that will respond to his preaching. And you think he's talking about outsiders. But the, the, the twist of Mark's gospel is it, is it that over the course of several chapters, you realize it's the disciples who are the outsiders and who are the hard soil and who are the soil that you know, has only sunk down just a little bit and fall away because of persecution. You realize that there are all these outsider characters who turn out to be more faithful disciples of Jesus than the disciples he's picked. And that dynamic continues until the, the, you know, the week of his death, which is where we're into now. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem. It wasn't triumphal. It was anticlimactic. He comes and he looks around and he leaves. Um, the, the people were expecting a Maccabean leader and instead he just shows up. And the next morning, he curses a fig tree, which is weird, and then shuts down the temple. And he's engaging in this symbolic, parabolic judgment of the temple. And that gets him into all sorts of trouble with with the religious leaders, which is what Kevin talked about. There are these series of controversy stories that happened during Jesus's last week. Now, all of this is review to get us to Mark chapter 14. Now, in Mark 14... Um, we're going to look at two sandwiches today. Sandwiches are literary techniques that Mark uses where he will bracket or sandwich some material with a repeated word or verse or image. So for instance, he sandwiched the blindness of the disciples, a series of stories about the blindness of the disciples with the healing of one blind man and then the healing of a second blind man. That's a sandwich. Or um, as we'll look at today, he's uh, he's going to bracket the Lord's Supper with two predictions of the disciples' failure. This is just what he does over and over and over again. We're going to look at two examples of this. 
and then we'll head into communion, all right? Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Passover, of course, comes from the book of Exodus, and it is the celebration, the yearly celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, but it also represents the hope that God will do again what he did for Moses' generation, that he will deliver Israel out of foreign oppression, this time from Rome. The Passover season was highly charged politically. You have the Sanhedrin who was, who was in power, who were worried about Roman, or excuse me, Jewish revolutionaries upsetting the balance of power, which favored them. And then you would have extra uh, Roman presence uh, in the Temple Mount to suppress the revolutionary fervor of the Jewish people during this time. So everyone was kind of on guard, all right? You would have Passover, which is one day the Passover lambs would be killed, and then you have a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Mark's giving us a time reference saying, hey, we're two days out from this whole event taking place. The chief priests, he says, and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, okay? And why would they want to do it secretly? They were afraid of the crowds, the revolutionary fervor, absolutely. You do not want to upset anything during this period of time. So they were looking for a way to uh, arrest him and ultimately to put him to death. And then you're like, and then there's a massive shift in tone. <laughs> but we're going to open with, this is the sandwich, we're going to open with um, the religious leaders scheming, and then we're going to close with some more scheming. But in the middle, there's this beautiful story about a woman who anoints Jesus' feet. While Jesus was in Bethany, a little village on the east side of Jerusalem, he's been there since his triumphal entry in chapter 11. While he was reclining at the table at the home of Simon the leper, I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough tag to live with. <laughs> I don't know if he was formerly a leper, most likely, but he was at the home of Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and a lot of you are familiar with nard, of course. She broke, now this is so important, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, the breaking of the jar is really significant because if you were going to save some of that perfume, you would open the jar and dump some on Jesus' head. But instead, she breaks it, meaning there's no way she can save any. She's giving literally everything that she has at great cost to herself. There's no way of capturing any of this and using it for any other purpose. It's complete abandonment in this act towards Jesus. Some of those present, and from other gospels, we suspect some of the disciples were saying this, they were indignant and sing to one another, what a waste of perfume. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Now, how, how concerned are the disciples with the poor up until this point? Zero. So they're just looking for a reason to mock this woman. They rebuked her harshly. And again, another example of the disciples completely missing this. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
the poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. Now just pause for a second because this verse gets really misunderstood. That's, the poor you will always have with you is from Deuteronomy 15 in a section where God says to his people, work so that you have no poor among you. But you won't do what I've commanded so you will always have the poor with you. So always take care of them. Make sense? So he's not saying, hey guys, uh, not now. <laughs> You'll have an opportunity to serve the poor later. No, no, no. What he's saying instead is he quotes this place from um, Deuteronomy saying, listen, you will always need to be concerned for the poor. But what's happening right now is unique. You, will, uh, you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she what? Could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my... Now, remember, the biggest thing the disciples are blinded to is the fact that Jesus is about to suffer and die. This woman, the reason she's so highly favored is she identifies completely with Jesus in his suffering rather than in his glory. And so literally, this woman and the picture of what she just did becomes the picture of what the ideal disciple looks like in comparison to all the rest of the men. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about her. So she literally is the ideal disciple in the book of Mark. Somebody who identifies with Jesus in his death and at great cost to herself anoints him symbolically for burial. Now, we have the first part where the religious leaders are scheming. That's the first part of the sandwich. Then this was like the, the meat part of the sandwich. And then we have, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, so he's supposed to be an insider, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over, again, secretly away from the crowds. So do you see what Mark's done here? The religious leaders are scheming. Judas is scheming. And in comparison to both of them, here's Jesus at Simon the leper's house being anointed by a woman who identifies with Jesus in his suffering and not in his glory. Are you with me? So she becomes literally the ideal disciple in the entire gospel. That's the only place where Jesus will literally say, we're gonna tell her story whenever my story is told. Now, so we've got a sandwich. Let's show the sandwich. Right? The religious the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to secretly kill Jesus. And then at the bottom of the sandwich, next, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus. And in Greek, not that you care at all, but I'm doing it anyway, because I'm learning Greek, guys. So you're going to get it. Here comes a chart. Yeah. Some people wonder, why should I give to the church? This is why. <laughs> you think this is free? Can you even see it? Kevin can see it because you're right, you're four feet from it, Kevin. Thank you. I can't see it. 
So Mark 14, 1, Mark 14, 11, the point of this slide, which I may remove now because it is completely underwhelming, is the fact that like Mark deliberately is showing you that these two incidences of the scheming of the religious leaders and the scheming of Judas are exact parallels that stand in contrast to the woman who anoints Jesus. Are you all impressed? Thank you for hitting those lights, Randy. Does not help make that bigger. <laughs> yeah, that one? Yeah, well, all right. All right, so charts, you're welcome. Now, this is one whole section of text that leads into some more sandwiches. So that's sandwich number one. Here we go, sandwich number two. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, so, so Passover was on Friday, but Friday in the Jewish calendar begins Thursday night. So Thursday night is actually Friday. So when Jesus eats this meal, it's during Passover, but it's, at the, it's Thursday night as opposed to Friday during the day. Right? Makes sense? So they just reckon days a lot differently. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now that's interesting because it's usually women who would carry around the jars of water, so it was like it wouldn't be a common thing. Follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters, teacher, uh, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with, and then what's it say? My disciples. Now, this is the only place where Jesus refers to, to them, like in some sort of possessive way. They've always been the disciples. And this becomes really important. So just mark that phrase, my disciples, down in your minds. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, you guys need another chart because this whole introduction to Passover is exactly grammatically the same introduction that we get into Jesus' triumphal entry. So fire up the chart. Yes. And here we go. In Mark 11, Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, and I, I like, didn't do the Greek on this one, and you're welcome. Um, but he's in Bethany on their way to Jerusalem. In Mark 14, what we just read, he's in Bethany. He sent two of his disciples in Mark 11, two of his disciples in Mark 14. Uh, Mark 11, go into the village and untie the colt. He said to them, go into the city and follow the man carrying the jar of water. He says, and if anyone should say to you, say, the Lord is requesting this. And in Mark 14, if you should enter a place, say, the teacher requests this. And then they answered just as Jesus had told them. They found things just as Jesus had told them. The reason this is important is because when, when there are parallels like this, Mark is drawing your attention to what happens after Jesus enters Jerusalem the first time. 
And if you remember, he goes into the temple and he judges it. He shuts it down. Now, Mark is drawing your attention to what happens after this preparation, where Jesus introduces himself as the new temple. Okay, so the parallels are designed to let you know that you're supposed to see what's about to happen in context of what's just happened two chapters ago. Are you with me on this? Dazzled, I can feel it. Now, we're about to hit another sandwich. All right, let me show you the sandwich first, then we'll read the text. If you're wondering, how does all of this help my life? It doesn't, but it's fascinating. There, no, it does. There's a point coming, believe it or not. There are three sections to this passage. So the, out, the outer two sections are the bread. The middle section is the filling. The first section is Jesus predicts a disciple's betrayal. And then the last part of the bread, Jesus predicts the disciple's desertion. And in the middle, we have Jesus sharing his body and blood. Now look at me. The point of this whole little spiel is that the sharing of Jesus' body and blood happens in the middle of the absolute abandonment of the disciples that he welcomes my disciples to his table when they're about to betray him, deny him, and abandon him. Do you understand this? And if you don't know the significance of that, one of the big questions we've had as we've gone through the book of Mark is why is Jesus so hard on these guys? Why did Jesus even choose them? The answer turns out to be because we are them. And in the same way, we find ourselves in fits and starts sometimes seeing Jesus well, sometimes not, yet still welcomed at his table. That is the invitation given to us as well. Are you with me? So this sandwich makes, makes a hearty meal, but it, it actually has a really significant point to it. So first part of this, are you with me, by the way? I don't mean with me like you agree, but just am I, am I at all clear? Okay, because sometimes the English language and I have, have difficulty. So um, the first part of the sandwich when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12 while they were reclining at the table, eating. He said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. <laughs> How'd you like that to be the opener for the Passover meal? One who is eating with me. And again, eating with me is intimacy, it's solidarity, it's sharing of status and kinship. So again, one of the insiders will become the ultimate outsider. One of you will betray me. They were saddened, and one by one said to him, surely you don't mean me. And then Jesus looked at them and says, it is one of the 12. Again, the, the supposed insiders are, are one of them anyway is gonna become like the, like the predominant outsider in the text. One who dips bread into the bowl with me, the son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays him. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. And you're like, wow, that's, a, that's an opener for a meal. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his, to who? His disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. 
Then he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now this phrase, blood for covenant, fire up the Exodus 24. This is a phrase from Exodus where Moses, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant. This was a huge moment in Israel's history. So when Jesus is eating with these unfaithful disciples and said, this is the blood of the covenant, he's invoking one of the most significant moments in Jewish life, now applying it not only to himself as the new temple, but to this band of nerds, right? That they're participating in this glorious thing that God is doing. Back to Mark. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in, in it new in the kingdom of God. When they'd sung a hymn, usually a psalm, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, here's the second part of the sandwich. The first part, one of you will betray me. Second part, <laughs> and Jesus is so abrupt. You will all fall away. Like, we've just had a great meal together, and he looks at him and says, you will all fall away. And, and this word in Greek is the same word that talks about those who fall away in the parable of the sower. That's why we think he's talking about them. And he quotes from Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Oh, I won't abandon you is what he's saying. You will all desert me, but I will not abandon you. I will find you again. Peter, God bless him. So Jesus, even if I'll fall away, I won't. Jesus, bro. That's, that's how you could translate this, bro. Today, tonight, before dawn, you will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically. So he's denying his denial. Even I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Okay, two sandwiches. Sandwich number one, a woman who anoints Jesus for his death, sandwiched by the plotting of the religious leaders to kill him, the betrayal of Judas. Sandwich number two, Jesus sharing Passover, now redefining it into something we call the Lord's Supper, with his disciples, bracketed by a prediction of the betrayal and a prediction of their abandonment and Peter's denial. The image we're getting is first, that Jesus is fully aware of what's happening and it's all unfolding according to plan. That's why we can quote the Old Testament, the Zechariah text, and say this, as he said before, must all happen. So even the controversies with the religious leaders and the failure of the disciples, all of that doesn't mean that God's will in this has been thwarted at all. Secondly, we get a picture of the ideal disciple in contrast to the 12. The 12 are going to deny, betray, and abandon. She breaks the jar and gives everything she has to anoint Jesus for burial. But the biggest point of these sandwiches is how faithless the disciples are, and yet they're still invited to the Lord's table. In other words, this meal that Jesus institutes I don't know how you understand communion and your tradition or your religious upbringing, but in my tradition, 
someone would always, it was a very solemn like point and you all had to take time to confess your sin because someone would come up and say, hey, you gotta get cleaned up. I've literally heard people say this. You gotta get cleaned up before you come to the Lord's table. And I just used to go, oh, okay. So there were times if I hadn't confessed in, I wouldn't take the bread and the cup or whatever. And somehow, and this is not shocking, somehow the American church made communion into some sort of meritocracy. There were some people who deserved it and other people who didn't. The point of the sandwiches is simply this. The Lord called those people his disciples and shared his body and blood with them far before they figured it out and got it together. We've made church and communion about worthiness. The point of this part of Mark is to say that there is no one worthy. It is for the unworthy. This whole thing is for the unworthy because the unworthy are the only kinds of people there are. So how is it that we've corrupted the beautiful picture of grace? These guys, I mean, they were sitting so magnificently, right? I mean, we, we, I mean, we look at our sins and of course they're, I mean, they're massive too, but I mean, I've never denied Jesus three times. I didn't plot to betray him. I didn't abandon him when he told me to stay awake. Although I've fallen asleep plenty in a situation like this. And yet, he identifies himself with them. And so, we've just turned, I have just turned this into some sort of self-righteous insider-outsider thing that the whole gospel of Mark is meant to subvert. If you're here and you're thinking, yeah, I'm not worthy, (laughs) It's for you. This whole thing is for you. If you're here and you're thinking, like me, I am worthy, we're the ones most in danger. Religion is the best place to hide from God. And so the reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week is to remind us that worthiness is not a part of the kingdom. It's not a part of the algebra or the calculus of how we account in the kingdom of God. Instead, all there is is gift. Unmerited, gracious, with worthy not included in the equation. Now, before we dive into more, any questions on what we've talked about? It was that good. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. I'll wait for a microphone if you would, just so our online audience can hear. Yep, she's right there. I shop, Kevin. So I think that you did a series on this previously, but that was before I started coming here um, about communion, taking communion and people. And specifically, I think there's a verse in the New Testament about what happened when people who had not confessed their sins took communion, and I believe they all died, right? Oh, so can you, can you address a rough that translation, passage? but yes. 
Okay, Brooke, that is us. Brooke, right? Yes, Brooke. Hello. Yes, we did a whole thing. Whole thing. The lights, ladies and gentlemen. We did this whole thing, and I don't know how you know that. That's fantastic. But yes, we did a whole thing on communion, and we dealt with this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Give me three minutes, five minutes on this, because it's super important. The text you're referring to, Kevin, yeah, Kevin's like, okay. The text you're referring to, indeed, says that you must take the, the body and blood and recognize it as the body and blood. And, and some of you in the Corinthian church have not, and many of you are falling asleep, which is a euphemism for dying. So what we've done with that text is we've said there has to be kind of this ruthless moral inventory before you should ever take the body and the blood. And certainly if you're not a believer, you should never take it. Well, what's interesting is if you read the context. So Brooke, I know um, you're studying to be a lawyer, so I know you're super smart and read a lot. So read, is that bad? Okay. I meant, to, I meant it to be, huh? You're embarrassed? Okay. Um, <laughs> guys, she's studying to be a lawyer. Let's... I know, how horrible is that? How embarrassing for her. She's not at all intelligent, yes. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Her name is Brooke, by the way. Uh, and she's, she's new here, so I'm sure she'll come back. Now, <laughs> go home and read all of 1 Corinthians 11, and it's fascinating because the whole concern of Paul has nothing to do, he's actually not warning non-Christians at all. He's actually warning the church because the rich Christians are eating separately from the poor Christians and they are shaming the poor Christians at the table that was supposed to subvert all of the cultural codes that everyone was abiding by. So, so it's fascinating, read the whole text, and the text, Paul literally is saying, listen, those of you, you eat first, you eat the best food, you get drunk at communion, and the poor are left to eat the leftovers, and they are outside of the dining room where the rich are eating. And that is what it means to not take the body and blood seriously. So the issue isn't, am I sinning? The issue is, is our church living in a way that invalidates the shalom of God that should be present when the believers gather? The question really is about social justice. Are we eating and, and fellowshipping in a way that shames a segment of our community? And in fact, Paul's exhortation at the end of that text isn't, so examine yourselves, the exhortation is, so you should all eat together. So read it for yourself. I'm not making it up. I don't know how it got so twisted, but it's true. It has gotten twisted, and it's not at all what Paul's talking about there. You don't even have to take my word for it. Not that you would. What a great question. Thank you. Thank you. We got a question on text line. Yeah. That I think um, merits a, a... Does it merit? It does, because okay. I think it's a good question. If Mark is using sandwiches as a literary device, does this undermine our ability to see these events as literal chronologically? 
And did Mark take some license in making the sandwiches? Or did God, in his wisdom, give Mark the symbols he would need to reinforce his story? Oh, that is, a, that is genius. We won't use the word merit here, because this okay. is about unworthiness. That's right. But if this is the least unworthy question nice. on the text line. Nice. Boom. All right, so one of the things, and I know this will shock you, one of the problems Americans have in reading the Bible in English is that we approach it like we approach every other English book. Um, and, in, and we've talked about this before, but between these covers is an entire bookstore of genre. Like when you go to the Barnes & Noble down the road, there's a fiction, nonfiction, poetry section, self-help section, whatever section. That's what your Bible is. Your Bible is a bookstore, but you don't have any idea that you're reading all these different kinds of literature. All right? Now, one of the things that a gospel is, is a gospel is a recording of historical events arranged in such a way as to make a theological point. So these things really happened, but they're arranged in a, in a way to say something. So for instance, if I were to tell you the story of how my wife and I met and got married, I could give you a three-minute version of that. I could give you an hour-long version of that. I could skip parts that weren't relevant in one telling of the story and still give you an entirely truthful accounting, correct? But if I have a purpose or a point that I'm making about that story, there might be parts I cut out or omit or parts that I include that I don't include elsewhere. And the gospel writers tell us they're doing this, right? Luke says it. He's writing to a patron and he says to his patron, Many have sought to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus, of what you've been learning about, Theophilus. Here is my account from talking to eyewitnesses. And Luke gives an account. Mark's account is slightly different. John's account is insanely different because he's making different theological points. John's point is that there are seven signs that accompany Jesus um, that, uh, that coincide with the seven days of creation. And the last sign is the resurrection of Jesus where Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener, which is so symbolic. So these things happened, yes, but they're arranged in a way to make a theological point. Does that make sense? That does not at all erode our confidence in the story they're telling. It just simply says that according to ancient like literary custom, this is what you did. You didn't tell a story just to tell a story. You told a story to make a point. This is true of a lot of the way our Old Testament is edited too. There are sections like in Chronicles um, that, that reflect events in Samuel and Kings and they're totally like revamped. And one, because one, of, one set of books deals with them before the exile, one set of books deals with them after. So the fact that our gospel writers have theological agendas is no problem. So good? So far? So far? So good? All right, anything else you want to talk about otherwise? Oh yeah, Kevin, move it. Back corner. Let's go. Get your steps in. Look at him like a gazelle among the lilies. And look how wide. Just look how wide these aisles are. Howdy, sir. Good. Um, I was just thinking, and you made some, um, talked about how the female uh, that you were depicting, was it Mary and Martha? They were considered to be uh, disciples. 
Yeah, I think you kind of made that point. And then I'm curious why, if that New Testament in, in Jesus' blood, after they, you know, drank, and they're talking about some of the new progression, even going to Paul, um, the new covenant, why we didn't consider or make that establish more where a female, a, a lady like Mary and Martha, were considered actual disciples and recognize that. Because I think that has a lot to do with the way we think of the relationship between men and women, even today in American society, yeah. in the Judeo-Christian church. Oh, what a great question. We love that question. All right, I'm going to start talking. If at any moment I'm not answering the question you asked, which happens often, just flag me down and let me know. But I'm going to back up a little bit. So much is made of Jesus choosing the 12. And the 12 all happen to be men. The disciples, Luke I mean, Luke records this ad nauseum. The disciples were made up of men and women. In fact, there were rich women that were financing the ministry of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Luke, women are always at where the action is happening, and sometimes the disciples aren't. So, um, so the reason God, the reason Jesus, and vice versa, saw the 12 as men is because the 12 patriarchs, were men, the 12 original sons of Jacob, and that Jesus was symbolically reconstituting and renewing Israel around himself. So that's why he singles out 12 men. If you take that and say, well, then that means all the apostles have to be men, we have a, we have a female apostle in, um, in Romans 16, and that just throws that whole thing out the window. So the reason the 12 were men is because Jesus was doing something symbolic, in reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel around himself. Now, one of the things, and, and you can see this, one of the things that, for me, really convinces me the Gospels uh, are true is they include things that are super embarrassing to the cause. So the disciples, if Mark is channeling Peter's writing, which we think is what he's doing, then why would Peter include Peter's denial and Peter's dumbness all throughout the text? Unless it really happened, right? So I actually look at the Gospels as beautifully embarrassing to the cause of Jesus. One of the things that was super embarrassing to the cause of Jesus were, were the fact that the women were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And that they were the ones that brought the good news to the male disciples, I think the picture you get in the New Testament, even from Paul, and this could be a fantastic conversation about First uh, Timothy 2 and all those sorts of things, but I think that the vision of the New Testament is that a church that has male and female leaders in the same way the movement of Jesus did, and that, there, that, that as we've kind of been born out of a patriarchal society and still wrestle with the remnants of that, there are parts of the Christian church that baptize Genesis 3, as when God reveals the power struggle that will now exist between men and women, they baptized that as the ideal, when the ideal is Genesis 1 and 2, where they were equally given the vocation to care for the earth and subdue it. So like one of the ways that we practice new creation ahead of time is by elevating women to all levels of leadership. And we're following the example of Paul. If you read Romans 16, there are 24 names mentioned, 10 of them are women, and all of the women are addressed prominently with all of Paul's favorite titles, co-worker, minister. 
Even Phoebe, who was a, a deaconess, which isn't a great translation of that word, she was the one that went to the Roman church and read it and interpreted it for Rome. She was Paul's benefactor. So women are highlighted all over the place. For some reason, there's been this pretty significant agenda to minimize those parts. And we could talk about why another time. That's a great question. Thank you. Anything else? We got time for one more if you want. Nice. Kevin, man, you are working the room. Right. I had to strategically Just... place myself because we, we didn't know what happened to Sam there for a minute. <laughs> All right. Oh, weren't you supposed to be helping? You had to go pee. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this may be way off the rails, but um, I've always wondered about the theology, theology of Judas' betrayal. Um, was he always destined for condemnation because Jesus said, you know, the person who betrays the Son of Man is better off not being born? Yes. Um, and how does that tie in with the idea that you talked about that, um, you know, the disciples were still invited to the table, right. even though they couldn't see it and were the ones who were most unworthy? Yes. Oh, what a great question. You must have good parents. Oh, oh, what time is it? Oh, dang. Okay, the clock on the screen, they just texted me, the clock is frozen on the screen. I'm like, we have so much time. We don't. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have time. Sorry. Okay, I'd have to answer that. Okay. There are these New Testament texts that speak apocalyptically of Judas, the one who was predestined to betray him. And the, and the predestined talk in the Bible isn't as clear as we would like it to be. Often, something will happen, and the Bible writers will look back at it and say, oh yeah, that was predestined. I tend to think that's what's happening here. I think Judas made the decision of his own accord, but someone, because Jesus talks about it heading up to the event, someone will betray him. So what was predestined was the betrayal. I don't think it necessarily was Judas. Now, loads of people are going to disagree with that and say, no, no, this whole event was orchestrated by God so that it happened exactly as it did. I don't see it that way. I see God providing channels of insight that are very broad that people then freely choose in and out of. So, great question, man. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And if you're here and you're like, oh, man, I'm not worthy of this, fantastic, it's for you. Fantastic, it's for you. And even those of you who aren't so sure on the Christian thing, like, we've had people who are hardcore atheists come into church communities and begin to take the Lord's Supper because there's something interesting about Jesus. And that in turn will soften their hearts. And in no way, shape, or form does Jesus stand at the end of the communion line upset that anyone takes a step towards him. So the, the, the invitation is that all the unworthy would go to be reminded of our identity as his disciples. Even in the midst of our screw-ups and failures, even in the midst of our colossal unworthiness, that's the invitation. We also have um, 
around the room at these stations where you can find the Lord's Supper, we have places where you can write down prayer requests. And we, we so value those and pray over those and invite you to participate in this. Now, one of the things we're going to do is we're just going to take a couple moments and we're, we're going to play music that doesn't have words, sometimes called instrumental music. <laughs> you know, I'm sophisticated. It's Nashville. I got to use the big words. Um, and, and we just want to pause and reflect. And so the invitation this morning would just be to reflect on all of the ways we either live in the self-righteousness of I am worthy or the shame of I'm not and how the invitation of Jesus works to counter both. So Lord, we love you. We bless you. We thank you that we are welcome at your table. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your kindness to us that leads us to repentance. We thank you for this great gift that we who get to call upon your name and share the meal you gave your disciples get to be numbered among them. So we bless you in the name of our Christ. Amen.